Well, I missed you last Sunday, church family, and I was uh, out of town. I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Gage uh, for bringing the word and, and even juggling. And uh, <laughs> I had some fun last week, and, and I'm sorry I missed that. Um, I was on a pastor's retreat with 10 other pastors in uh, Michigan, uh, just north of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Had never been there before. Uh, this Ohio boy felt a little out of place. <laughs> Um, but I played nice uh, there in, in Michigan. But um, a, a beautiful time in which some ground rules were laid for us as we gathered with pastors kind of from all over uh, the country. The two rules were you could not say what denomination you're from and you could not say the size of your church. And so I walked in as a pastor, um, but we were all equals. Um, And there were many things, if we had used some labels, there were many things that could have divided us, but instead we were united under the banner of Christ as Lord, and that's the team I want to be on. I love my church, I love my denomination, um, but it was so good to um, unite with other ministers. Um, And and, and I'll tell you where where this place was in in Michigan, it was a 600-acre retreat center, this massive place Um, but within the 600 acres were 160 acres that were set aside as a deer sanctuary. So a safe place for deer. And in Kansas, we don't, we don't need safe places for deer. Uh, they're everywhere and please go hunt them. You know, um, we need less, but, but, but here, uh, the deer sanctuary, um, it was fascinating because there, there were deer everywhere. They were all around. There was one named Harvey. Um, Harvey would, would kind of walk around, and, and I could walk right up to Harvey, and I did, and I just gave him a little scritches behind the ears. Um, Harvey was like a dog. It was, it was so cute. It was adorable and odd, uh, different. But I noticed something about the deer there as they were just kind of milling about and, and uh, enjoying their, their existence. There was a, a barrier all the way around that 160-acre property, um, at least 10 feet tall, maybe taller, of fencing, okay? And then when you left and came back and uh, you, you drove out of here, you, you had to enter in the code so the fence would open. You had to pull forward, and then you had to wait for it to close because they were worried that the, the deer might try to get out. Never saw that. In fact, it was fascinating what I saw. I never saw a deer hanging out around the fence, going to the edges, and, and looking out beyond. One, there was a road right there. <laughs> but but I, I never, and I, I would go on hikes and walks and, and that kind of thing, and it was like there were trees everywhere. It was crazy um, what, what it looked like out there. But as, as I was doing that, I saw plenty of deer, but I did not see deer standing at the barrier at the fence and looking out or hanging up right beside the fence. What I did saw, do you know where the deer were? They were gathered around the feeders and around the water. Because they could long for, I don't know, some type of freedom in this world, but freedom that they had told us that uh, on the the last retreat, the the neighboring property had reported the sight of a black bear. So there were were black bears out there. There were hunters uh, on, on the other side of the fence. There were predators. There were roads with cars. There were bad things for deer out there. And so I didn't, I didn't see the deer wishing the fence was not there. Where the deer were is they were near the feeders and near the fresh water. 
And, and I got to thinking. The word of the Lord, the kingdom of God, the body of believers is not a fence meant to keep you in. It's the feeders and the fresh water. Some might even say the living water. And so I, I hope that we as a church, that we would not hang out by the edges and say, how far can I go? How, how close can I get to the edge of danger? But instead, let's just, I don't want to worry about the fence. Now, the fences are important. The fences are there. The rules are there. The boundaries are there. But I want to be the type of church that just loves the word, loves Jesus so much that that's where we'll hang out because that's where we're fed. <laughs> so that was part of where my heart was this week. And so we're in the Gospel of Mark and we're going to continue that. And Pastor Gage led us so faithfully in, in that, that story of uh, the alabaster jar and the perfume and um, uh, thank you, Pastor Gage. That was a, a challenging message. Not just a little bit, but we give our all, maybe even extravagantly. So the setting here, as we continue, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, is the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. Passover is approaching. And it is the most important holiday of the year to the Jews, to, to God's people. And Jesus, like any good Jew, was going to participate in this celebration. It was a seven-day event in which the people of God are there to commemorate something. Our holidays are generally one day, right? And we're in the time where, yeah, we, we celebrated Labor Day just a little while ago, but it was one day. It was a day off, and it's a good day, right? And coming up next is, I guess the next one's probably Halloween. And so you get one day of some candy and costumes and that kind of thing. And you get to maybe Thanksgiving, and maybe Thanksgiving's a little bit more than one day, right? Because it's always on a Thursday, which I like, and so Friday, you know, you can, you can enjoy that time too. And so maybe it gets spread out. Then Christmas. And Christmas is a day, but it's also a season, right? And I, I'm pretty sure you can go buy some Christmas stuff right now, and <laughs> it's October. We're, we're approaching the season. For Passover, it is not just one day. It is this this festival of unleavened bread, it's a seven-day event in which the people of God are remembering something very important from the past, the deliverance from Egypt in, in the book of Exodus. You can read the story in the book of Exodus. So let me give you a little bit of context here, kind of story time. In Genesis, the world is created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did happen? God saw that it was good. It was good. I fear that Christians far too often leave off the last, the, leave off the first two books of the, the first two chapters in the Bible and the last two chapters in the Bible. And if you leave off the first two chapters in the Bible, you start with sin and brokenness and evil. And if you leave off the last two chapters in the, in the Bible, you end with the lake of fire. You, you end with punishment and destruction and hell. That's why the first two books of the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are so important because you start with creation and God intentionally, purposefully designing and bringing function and purpose to everything. And God said that it was good. And then you know what? God created mankind. And you know what God said about mankind? It was very good. You got it. 
not to make you feel too good today, but very good. Awesome. We were created to be very good. And if you go all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, heaven comes down to earth in Revelation 21. And it says God will dwell with mankind. And it's not us flying off somewhere to to a far off distant heaven. It is heaven coming down to earth and all of God's creation is dwelling together. Those who who have rejected God, they will end up on the side of evil. And God will deal with evil. And it won't be a part of the heaven and earth coming together. But for those of us who choose God, who choose good, man. Heaven and earth comes together, and it is beautiful. So don't forget the first two chapters in the Bible and the last two chapters. But in the Bible, we have this good. Uh, uh, Creation is good. But then you do get to Genesis chapter 3, and sin enters the world. And with it, evil, violence, terrible, bad things. And so God chooses a people. He starts with a man named Abram, who becomes Abraham. And Abraham is to become the descendants of God's people. His family is set apart to be a blessing to all other nations. God's people are not to be isolated from the rest of the world, but be the example for the rest of the world, a blessing to all other nations. So God's people were part of this attempt that God is making to reestablish the connection between good, good, holy, perfect, pure God and broken, sinful creation and mankind. And that's Genesis. And there are some crazy wild stories, and it's, it's great to read. But by the time we hit, then hit the book of Exodus, the next book, life has gotten so bad. Things have gotten so messed up that these people, these supposedly ambassadors of God, these ones who are supposed to be God's people representing God to the world and being a blessing to all, all the world, they are instead taken captive and oppressed by a nation, specifically Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh in Egypt is the problem. It is the violent, powerful, evil bully ruling over Abraham's descendants who are supposed to be God's people. And and he's not just ruling over, he's oppressing. He's being violent. He's enslaving by force God's people. And so Abraham's descendants were made to be slaves of Egypt and Pharaoh. And this should not be so. This is not the way things were supposed to be. So God raises up Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses is this prophet, this messenger of God, who goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, Pharaoh, you think you're in charge. You think you're a God. You think you have all the power. You do not. You are not in control here, Pharaoh. And you think Abraham's descendants are your slaves, and you can treat them however you like, terribly and poorly, and hurt them and bully them, but these people are really God's people. They're not your people, and so God's people are going to leave. And Pharaoh said, that's fine, go ahead. No. Oh, no, no, no. Pharaoh wants control. And when his control is threatened, he takes more control. Attempts to, anyway. So he will not give up the power or control that he thinks he has, so he does not let God's people go. And the result is these horrifying ten plagues that come over Egypt. Judgment has come to deal with evil. And that's what happens. And God is set to demonstrate how little control and power these evil empires of the world really have over his people. And then a choice is made on the final night, the final plague. Moses tells not just Pharaoh, but everyone, listen, judgment is coming on this land. And God's people have been enslaved and hurt, and that is evil. And God is 
going to finally deal with evil. And so choose now. If you side with evil, you will receive the punishment God has planned for evil. But if you side with God, you will be saved. And this is what it looks like for those who sided with God, who were God's people and endured generations of slavery and oppression. They followed the instructions Moses gave, and these were the instructions to take a lamb, an unblemished, a perfect lamb, to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on their doorway of their home. And every doorway that is marked by the lamb, when punishment comes, when God comes to to deal with the evil, that marking of that lamb signifies you are not aligned with the evil that is taking place in that land. And all whose houses were marked by that sacrificial lamb were were saved. And they they took that lamb, they put the blood on the doorway, they had a meal with the unleavened bread, the Passover meal. They were passed over when judgment came to deal with evil. And for some who did not choose that, who chose to side with the evil ways of the, the evil empire, death came for some, loss, great loss came for others. And on that night, the angel of death passed over the people of God. And God's people were no longer Pharaoh's slaves. They went out free to be who God had called them to be, a blessing to the world. And so then every year, at the beginning of the year, the descendants of Abraham gathered with unleavened bread and remembered the Passover. They celebrated, commemorated, honored that time with a Passover meal. They told the stories. They expressed their thankfulness for God's deliverance from evil and even put themselves in that place so long ago to think, think, you know what, God didn't just save my ancestors, he's saving me as well. And so now, in Mark chapter 14, it is time for Jesus and his followers, all descendants of Abraham, to remember the Passover. And so now, with the proper setting and context, I'll read for Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the disciples said to Jesus, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city. A man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, already furnished. Prepare for us there. The disciples left, came into the city, found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. That evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. During the meal, Jesus said, I assure you, one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. Deeply saddened, they asked him one by one, it's not me, is it? Jesus answered, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread with me in this bowl. The human one goes to his death just as is written about him, but how terrible it is for that person who betrays the human one. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it in a new way in God's kingdom. After singing songs of praise, they went out. To the Mount of Olives. 
I want us to think about what Jesus is doing here and why he's doing this. The word of the Lord has some important things for us today. The first, I think, is a reminder. It is important to celebrate the past of what God has done and how he has been faithful. Thankfulness, gratitude, and to be intentional about it, to put into practices ways in which you will never forget. That's what's happening here with this Passover meal. There are ways in in which, um, well, the saying is, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. We cannot forget the past. Those who have sacrificed, those who have served, those who have trained us, watched over us, perhaps introduced us to Jesus. There are reasons to celebrate that. We love to talk about the good old days. It's part of the reason I included the theme song from the Andy Griffith show with our kids. Man, I got some confused looks. <laughs> but I, I, I think, about, think, think back to those times of the Andy Griffith show. For me, it reminds me of my grandfather, and he's uh, passed away many years ago. But when I would go to his house, we would watch the Andy Griffith show together on TBS, usually after the Braves game, or if they were in a rain delay. <laughs> the Andy Griffith Show and the Beverly Hillbillies, that's, that's what, what, what would be on there, right? But, but I think back to, the, to those times, and I'm, I'm so grateful for them. And we look back and we think, man, those were the good, old, simpler times, better times. Or were they? <laughs> There's a lot of ways in which, in those times, there were many struggles, <laughs> hardships. We have technology that makes things easier. We have modern medicine that makes things better and helps us. But I think it's important to celebrate the past. I don't think it's silly to place flowers on the grave of a loved one, say on their maybe the anniversary of their death. Is that grave their final resting place? No, it is not. Are they doomed to rot in the ground forever? No. We know the future, but that doesn't mean we have to forget the past. So we are people who celebrate the memories, the reasons we have to be thankful. And that is largely what Passover is. God was faithful, miraculously faithful, and each year they stopped, they paused, they took a week to celebrate that. Has God been faithful in your life? He has in mine. And there may be a specific time, a moment in time in which you can say, there it was. That was God. I was in trouble. I was at rock bottom. I was hurting. Here's where it was. And then Jesus came into the picture, and everything changed. And I love to hear those stories. Don't you love to hear those stories? They're awesome. It is so cool. But I also recognize not everybody has that story. Not everybody has the clear moment in time in which Jesus came into their life and, dr- and dramatically, immediately changed everything. For some, for, for, for some, it's a gradual thing. It's a learning process that takes an entire lifetime. For others, well, you grew up in the church. You've been here your entire life. You don't know what life was like before Jesus. Can I tell you, God is faithful to each and every one of you. <laughs> Regardless if it's bringing you out of the depths of brokenness and rock-bottomness, or if it's just day by day walking with you through life. That's the story of Thomas Chisholm. I think I've shared this 
with you before. But he was born in a log cabin in Kentucky around the time of the Civil War. He started following Jesus at the age of 26 years old, and then he lived his life. He had a few jobs here and there. He got sick occasionally. He did not really climb to the great heights of success in the fields he worked in. He never really got all that low either. And then one day, he died. And his life was most, mostly unremarkable. But he still managed in that very ordinary life to write a song. And it goes like this. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, unto me. That's a man who didn't need to be brought up from the, from the very rock-bottom world in which some know. He didn't need to be freed from, from terribleness. He just knew, morning by morning, new mercies came into him. And then he, did this. he, he wrote this, Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. I love this. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto I wonder how many of us have needed to have the prayer, Lord, I just need strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Jesus might say it this way, give us today our daily bread. Strength for today, but bright hope for tomorrow. Thomas Chisholm knew that. This week, I would challenge you, take some time to celebrate the faithfulness of God in your life. Does that mean your life's been perfect? No. Does it mean you don't have hardships or burdens, difficulties? I know, I know. But boy, God has been faithful. He's been good. The, the, the second part I want us to see is, is Jesus, he's doing this and bringing his disciples in right at the time of Passover and over the Passover feast because he is about to become the new Passover lamb. There's an obvious comparison between what Jesus is doing and what will happen to Jesus and what happened in the book of Exodus. Where the people of God were once enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we now find ourselves enslaved by our own sin. These days, we don't need... <laughs> a conquering evil king to get us to do wrong. We kind of take care of that ourselves, unfortunately. The king, the bully, the, the 
the ruling evil power sometimes is our own selfishness, our own desires we put above all else. It's sin that separates us from God. God is good. He's holy. He is pure. He cannot tolerate sin. And we, every single one of us, are marked, stained by sin. You've probably heard this before, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And what that does is then it opens up a chasm. It opens up, this is separation from God. He cannot tolerate sin. He is holy. He is pure. And all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We hear that a lot. We know Romans 3.23, but do you know Romans 3.24? Romans 3.24 says it this way, but all are treated as righteous freely by his grace. Why? Because of a ransom that was paid by Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. The Passover lamb brought freedom for the slaves from Egypt, and the death of Jesus brings freedom for us from sin and death. We could stop there today. I could stop there today. Isn't that an encouraging message? Jesus has paid the price for our sins, and we can know freedom in him. We don't have to be freed. Or we don't have to be enslaved to sin. We don't have to let the darkness and evil take over. We can know freedom in Jesus Christ. And freedom, like, like the deer, not, not because we are now kept in by a pen, by, by, by rules and, and by scripture that prevents us from going out and doing whatever we want. No, we know the freedom of Jesus Christ to know to be fed and to be watered, that our hunger and thirst are quenched in this sanctuary. It's beautiful. And we could stop right there. But there's, a, there's another detail here that I've had to wrestle with quite a bit. And we think, you know what? Jesus died for our sins. And he did that because yeah, the people of God, they needed to be saved. But man, we're mostly good people, right? We church people are mostly good people. We're not perfect, but I think we're worth saving. We try, we forgive, we help people, we're kind, and you know what? We're, we're doing our best here. So we probably deserve a seat at the table that Jesus brings his followers in. And, and I wonder if Jesus' followers might have thought that too. They'd given up whatever their lives, whatever lives they previously had, and instead decided to follow Jesus. Literally, they followed him all over the countryside, right, right into Jerusalem, right here into this upper room. So the disciples, the followers of Jesus, those of us who follow Jesus, we deserve to have a table, a seat at the table, right? But except there is that one verse, verse 18. Man, I've wrestled with this. During the meal, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. You probably know the story. There was one disciple, one of the twelve. Interesting here, Mark doesn't tell us who. Mark, Mark does not give us the name here. Now, eventually the story goes on and, and the name comes out. But Mark doesn't bother to tell us, give us that detail of, of who it is. We'll find out later. And the response from the other disciples in verse 19 is not, oh, uh, I bet it's Judas. 
I know who the troublemaker is. I know who the it's It's got to be him, right? He's the one that's going to turn to the dark side. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, we know who it is. Say no more. It's obvious. It's that, that you know, grumpy guy over there. No, the disciples did not start to speculate and think, oh, it must be this guy or it must be that guy. Look how they responded in verse 19. Deeply saddened, they asked him one by one, it's not me, is it? As if Mark is wanting to make sure it doesn't matter who the one is. We're not going to name him right now. Because the story of sharing communion with the body of believers is not about identifying who the messed up ones are. And slapping a troublemaker label on them and then everyone else just sits back and says, Oh, yes, they're obviously the problem. And now we're fine. We're glad to have that troublemaker out of there. The invitation to the Lord's Supper is that we approach the table and we look inside of ourselves, not towards anyone else. And the disciples say, could this be me? Am I the one who might mess up today? Could I be the one who betrays Jesus? In other words, I'm not going to worry about someone else's sin. I got my own sin I got to deal with. Because as I approach the possibility of receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, maybe I'm not the one who's worthy to have a seat at the table. And to the one who was not sure if they are worthy to sit at Jesus' table, Jesus would say, well, you're right. You're not worthy to sit at my table. Now sit, (laughs) pull up a chair. You're not worthy, but I'm going to take care of that. So sit down. Because it's not your goodness that gets you there. It's not your behavior or your intelligence or your understanding that makes you eligible to receive God's grace and the sacrifice of Jesus and his death on the cross. It is not anything you do that makes you eligible for Jesus to sacrifice his life for you. And that is how sin is dealt with. We know it comes out later in the chapter, it's Judas. He goes on to turn against Jesus, and he received money from the bad guys so they could go and arrest Jesus at night in secret, and no one else would know. The bad guys have been wanting to arrest Jesus for a while, but if they go do it in the daylight, in the temple, the crowds like Jesus, and they will riot and probably either stop it or create unrest, and the Romans will step in. So they had to arrest Jesus in secret, in quiet, at night. But they didn't know where he stayed. They didn't know where he was. And Judas was the way in which they could get that inside information. And what Judas goes on and does is evil. It's wrong. But did you catch the timing of Jesus' words in verse 18? And I think Mark does this intentionally as well, and it wrecks me. During the meal, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. Judas got to sit down at the table. Whoa. And he participated in this Passover meal with Jesus and the other disciples. He got a seat at the table. Did Judas deserve that? Absolutely not. Jesus even goes on to say it'd probably be better if he wasn't born. He didn't deserve it. 
But Jesus knew what he was going to do, and yet Jesus did not prevent him from sitting down at the table. And here's the difficult part of this passage. If Jesus did not prevent Judas from sitting at the table, who are you trying to prevent from sitting at your table? Who have you not extended forgiveness to? I do want to point out there is a distinction here. Because Jesus is going to go on to say, and we'll hit this next week a little bit, but everyone is going to desert Jesus, including Peter, famously, and the rooster crows, and he's got to deal with that. Everyone turns on Jesus. Everyone flees Jesus. Judas is not the only one doing wrong in this time. But what was the difference? Certainly for Peter, and for the others as well, for everyone not named Judas, there was confession and repentance. And genuine repentance is met with genuine forgiveness. Judas, now, we're not giving all the details here, but it seems as if we, as we read the story, that is the difference. It does not seem that Judas confessed and repented of his sins. He was sorrowful, obviously. He turned the money back in. So perhaps, maybe, in that moment, there was time for him to receive God's forgiveness. I don't know. I can't speak to it. But I do know genuine repentance is met with genuine forgiveness. And so the celebration remains then that for all those who will receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, all get a seat at the table. So I would invite us this morning to receive the bread and the juice today like the Israelites received the Passover meal, like it will save your life. In the original Passover meal, the Israelites weren't sure what was going to happen. Was this the time when they had gone too far and Pharaoh was going to summon his army to wipe them out? This may not be the last meal they have as slaves. This might be the last meal that they have. And yet God was faithful, and he saved them. Saved them from enslavement and brought freedom into their lives. In the communion, which we're going to receive in just a little bit, it is a reminder to us that God is faithful. That Jesus has had his body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. And therefore, we are no longer slaves to death and sin. And we can know that freedom in Christ. So on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Lord, we come to you today. We are not worthy to receive what you give to us. And so, with humble hearts, we sit down at your table, equally unworthy. And we are so grateful for for the sacrifice of your son on the cross. And what that means in being released from sin 
and from death. May all who receive this morning, may these elements be your means of grace, and may all who receive, receive your grace, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.